Almost all of Europe in the month of August is busy with non-stop travel and ongoing summer holidays. Everywhere, families and friends embark on their journey to enjoy the sun and sights of the season. For the airline industry, it's non-stop, fast-paced, almost 24-hour time of the year. And for the flight crew and ground engineers, it's all hands on deck. Andreas Promadro was one of these crew members who worked tirelessly to support himself and to make sure that travelers are treated well so they can get to their holiday destinations safe and sound. At that time, Andreas had big dreams of being a commercial pilot one day. He already had his flying license from the United Kingdom, but it is only designated for light aircraft. Soon enough, though, he figured he'll join the rank of captain for a major airline. For now, Andreas kept himself busy as a hard-working flight attendant for Helios Airlines, and along with his girlfriend, Harris Sharambolos, also a flight attendant, until he is able to achieve his goal. One day, Andreas received a phone call from the office asking if he was available to step in for a colleague who was sick. The plane leaves in about three and a half hours, which left him no time to get ready. He was about to say no when he realized that his girlfriend Harris was also working the same flight, so of course he agreed. Plus, it's extra money, and Harris and he can spend time together while waiting for the next leg of the trip. But on this flight, Andreas will soon realize that despite his training as a flight attendant and light aircraft pilot, he will not be able to spend any time with Harris. In fact, they won't spend any time outside the aircraft at all. You are listening to Untimely, a podcast about events in earlier or recent history that resulted in untimely fatalities and damages in its wake. I am your host, Lynn. I read an article from USA Today that statistically speaking, flying is far safer than driving. The National Safety Council compiled an odds dying table in 2008 and in their calculation, the odds of a person dying in a motor vehicle accident is 1 is to 98. While for flying, it is 1 to 7,178 in a lifetime. But I think what makes air disasters scarier and much more intense is that for a person flying, you have almost no control at all, while driving gives you a sense of being able to have some sort of control in most cases anyway. Which then brings me to today's episode, where control plays a big part of this unique incident. Our story today brings us to Europe, over the Mediterranean Sea. There has been documentaries from Discovery Channel and National Geographic TV about this flight, and even twice on the show Mayday, which called this flight a ghost plane. In the early 2000s, the demand for flights all around the world was high. At the same time, the start of online travel bookings were in its initial stages and consumers were able to reserve flights at a reasonable cost. This in turn was capitalized by smaller airline companies, including Helios Airlines. Helios Airlines was the first independent and privately owned airline from the country of Cyprus founded in 1998. 
Cyprus is a country south of Turkey in the Mediterranean Sea, and its location made it easy for Helios Airlines to offer both European and African travel destinations such as London, Paris, and Cairo. Similar to other smaller airlines, Helios did not own any actual airplanes, but instead, Helios leased the plane from bigger airlines, though everything else, including engineering and staffing, were all managed internally. One of these leased planes was a Boeing 737-300, registered as 5B-DBY, nicknamed Olympia. This plane that was owned by DBA was first flown in December 1997 and leased to Helios in 2004. The plane Olympia has 142 economy class passenger seats, four seats in the cockpit, and four cabin crew seats. At this point in time, Olympia had accumulated 17,900 flight hours. Summer travel was in full swing in Europe on August 2005. On the early dawn of the 14th, aircraft Olympia registered as Helios Flight 522 arrived at Larnaca International Airport in Cyprus from London, England. The final destination of Flight 522 was Prague in the Czech Republic, which stops in Athens, Greece, at around 10.45 a.m. local time. The flight was scheduled to depart at 9 in the morning local Cyprus time. Once on the ground at Larnaca, the flight crew asked maintenance to look into unusual noises and a frozen seal in the right aft service door, which is toward the tail of the plane. The ground engineer used the time from the arrival to near the departure time to perform the necessary checks as protocol. With this specific maintenance request, a pressurization leak check is performed. Now, I am definitely not an expert in aircraft engineering, but I did consult with a professional to explain what it is and what it means. Basically, over time, aircrafts develop minor leaks. Yes, I know, my eyes got wider when I heard about this as well. But these minor leaks are mostly inconsequential. However, there are larger leaks that will prevent the pressurization system to stabilize inside the cabin. So when passengers or crew members feel cold air where there shouldn't be, a pressurization leak check basically simulates the atmosphere conditions inside the aircraft without being up high in the air to locate the leak and fix it or ground the plane for flight. The check starts by setting the pressurization system to manual mode so the engineers can apply the simulated conditions, look for the leak, and fix the issue if necessary. For Plane Olympia, after the ground engineer completed the test, the aircraft was approved to return to service and no delays to the flight occurred. The captain for Helios 522 was Hans-Jürgen Merton who was on contract with Helios Airlines to cover the demands of the season. Captain Merton was a German native, well-experienced, and at 59 years old, had been flying for over 35 years, accruing over 16,900 flight hours. Next to him is his first officer, Pampos Sharambolos, 51 years old and a Cyprus native with over five years' experience under Helios Airlines, with over 7,549 flight hours accrued. The chief flight attendant was Luisa Voteri from Greece. Luisa and another attendant were not originally supposed to be on this crew, but had to replace their colleagues who were out sick. The passenger list show 115 souls on board. 
an hour before the departure, each crew member both in and out of the plane performed the necessary flight checks. Normally, there are three major checks conducted, pre-flight, after start, and after takeoff. And at 9.07 a.m. local time, Flight 522 takes off at Larnaca Airport on its way to Athens, its first stop. Five minutes later, as the plane reached a little over 12,000 feet or 3,600 meters, the cabin altitude warning sounds an alert. What this alert means is that the electronic system still thinks the plane is on the ground, but it is sensing altitude above the ground. This alarm should have stopped the captain and the first officer to continue climbing in altitude, but instead, they kept going up. Two minutes later, the captain contacted the operation center at Nicosia Air Traffic Control and reported a takeoff configuration warning and an air conditioning system problem. While communication between the captain and operations continued, the airplane continued to climb up and up while the air pressure inside the cabin gradually decreased. So as you might imagine, the pressure inside the cabin is decreasing because the plane is climbing higher and higher. And at 18,000 feet, the oxygen masks automatically deployed. In the next eight minutes, the captain and operation center were in constant radio communication, trying to figure out what is going on. At one point, the operation center brought in an on-duty ground engineer to talk to the captain. This was the same ground engineer who performed the pressurization leak check earlier. Here is an excerpt of the exchange between Captain Merton and the ground engineer. Merton. The cooling ventilation fan lights were off. Engineer. Can you confirm that the pressurization panel is set to auto? Merton. Where are my equipment cooling circuit breakers? Engineer. Behind the captain's chair. This exchange happened about 9.20 in the morning, and the plane was at 28,900 feet and is continuing to go up. It will be the last time that Nicosia Air Traffic Control, or anyone for that matter, had direct contact with the crew of Flight 522. After three minutes, the plane leveled off at its altitude at 34,000 feet. At 9.37 in the morning, Flight 522 entered the Athens Regional Airspace, and it was assumed that the plane was on autopilot. Since Flight 522 was unresponsive, Nicosia Air Traffic Control informed Athens Air Traffic Control that radio contact has been lost. And for the next two hours, no one will hear back from the crew. While Athens Air Traffic Control tried over and over to get a hold of someone from the plane, the flight eventually reached Athens airspace close to the airport. The air traffic control cannot visually see the plane as it was still at 34,000 feet, but from the radar, Athens was able to locate the plane. By then, air traffic control thought the plane was going to land as scheduled around 10.45 in the morning, so air traffic control sent a message to the plane that they can approach runway 03L. However, flight 522 missed the approach and instead banked to the right. Now, when an autopilot near the airport, a plane will execute a holding pattern where it would circle in one area until it receives directions. 
In normal times, the plane would usually hover above the area as it waits for a signal. Air traffic control then recognized that the plane was entering the holding pattern. Since this was post-9-11 and the threat of terrorism was still echoing through the minds of security and traffic control, the Athens Joint Rescue Coordination Center was alerted to a possible airplane attack. In response, two F-16 fighters were deployed to possibly intercept the renegade aircraft. At 11.24 in the morning, the F-16 pilots located the aircraft hovering the island of Kia near the Athens airport. The orders received by the pilots were to stop the plane from causing damage to Athens and the surrounding areas at all costs. The F-16 pilots closed in on the plane as safely as possible, around 300 meters. Coming from behind the plane, the F-16 pilots first observed that the oxygen masks were deployed in the main cabin. Although it was dark, the shape of the oxygen hose and the mask from the top of the plane were unmistakable. Also, there was no evidence of structural damage or fire or smoke inside the cabin and outside the plane. Slowly getting close to the front, they looked at the cockpit. What they saw alerted them that there was something very, very wrong. For one, the captain's seat was empty, and he was nowhere to be found. Secondly, the first officer was slumped over his seat. He was not moving. Nothing was moving. So the F-16 pilots attempted to get the attention of the flight crew using interception radio calls on the emergency frequency, but to no avail. It was also then that they observed that the cabin passengers seemed motionless. The F-16 pilots reported back to the joint rescue team of what they were seeing. Down on the ground, the joint rescue will need to make a tough decision. If... This was truly a terrorist attack. Will the lives of the 121 passengers and crew members be sacrificed to avoid any attacks to the thousands of people living in the city of Athens below? Suddenly at 11.49 in the morning, the F-16 pilots saw someone moving inside the cockpit. It wasn't the captain, but this person had a uniform on, so they figured it was one of the crew members. The F-16 pilots made visual contact and saw that the man had a portable oxygen mask on and was scrambling to regain control of the plane. It seems that at that moment, the decision to intercept the plane was on hold and there is no evidence of a terrorist plot involved. The F-16 pilots were somewhat relieved. This may have a good ending yet. They saw the man sit down at the captain's chair and put on some headphones, possibly to communicate with them or someone. But as the man waved to the F-16 pilots briefly to establish some sort of communication, the left engine flamed out and stopped working. After holding the pattern for the tenth time, the left engine ran out of fuel. As the left engine completely flamed out, the plane turned steeply to the left and started to head north and slowly decreased in elevation. The F-16 pilots followed the plane's path while still trying to establish communication inside the cockpit. One of the F-16 pilots tried to use a hand signal to ask the man if he can carry on flying. The man then shook his head to the left and to the right and pointed downwards instead. 
One minute later, the plane changed direction from north to southwest, while still continuing to descend closer and closer to the ground. Then, at 11.59 in the morning, when Flight 522 was at 7,000 feet, the right and final engine flamed out. It continued to head south, away from Athens. The F-16 pilots looked inside the cockpit again to signal the man inside, but he disappeared. Three hours after departing Larnaca International Airport, two hours after it lost contact with air traffic control, and less than an hour after the F-16 pilots located the plane, Flight 522 descended rapidly and crashed into the rolling hills of Grammatico Village, 33 kilometers away from Athens International Airport. There were no survivors. Flight 522's 121 crew members and passengers were forever lost. 22 were children. 118 of the 121 bodies were recovered, but took a while to identify since many were badly burned. Dental records and DNA were used to determine and match names with the manifest. The three bodies, who were never recovered, were thought to have disintegrated on impact. The official report stated that the cause of death for all on board was determined to be multiple injuries due to impact, in addition to the extensive burns for 62 of them. Among those who died was that one crew member inside the cockpit in the last 30 minutes of the flight, the one who the F-16 pilot saw. It was found later that this person was Andreas Promodro, a 25-year-old flight attendant from Cyprus who was called in to work the flight to replace someone who was originally supposed to be on Flight 522's crew. At that time, Andreas had a light aircraft flying license, but not for commercial flights. However, despite his realization that there was absolutely nothing he can do at that point in time to land the plane safely, he made the painstaking decision and navigated the doomed flight to the hills in Grammatico. If not for Andreas's quick actions, there would have been more destruction and casualties from this accident. Andreas was hailed a hero. Investigators from the Air Accident Investigation and Aviation Safety Board of Greece examined the crash site, took photographs, and documented the location of each piece of the plane found in the surrounding hilly area. One photograph showed the two parallel dirt paths, which was caused by the plane's impact on the ground. Another photo showed the tail assembly of the plane near the crest of the hill and plenty of debris. Parts of the cockpit panel were found all over the area, and each one was identified, photographed, and cataloged for further analysis. And most importantly, the flight data recorder, commonly known as the black box, was recovered. A part of the investigation included checking the crew members' activities within 24 hours of takeoff. This is normal, to determine if any of the flight crew's actions had something to do with the accident or if they were unable to perform their duties. The investigation also included checking for alcohol or illicit drugs in their system. Interviews of close friends and family members were also conducted to ensure that the crew members' psychological states were stable. In the end, 
all crew members were deemed capable and physically able for the flight. No alcohol or illicit drugs were found in their systems. Although in the case of Captain Merton, his body was so badly burned that blood alcohol content recovery was not possible. So what happened? What made this routine flight end in tragedy and loss of life? According to the final report by the investigators submitted on November 2006, there were three major factors to the accident and three minor ones. First reason was the cabin pressurization mode selector was set to manual instead of auto and was missed by the captain and first officer in the pre-flight, after-start, and after-takeoff checklists. Second reason was that the alert first heard by the captain and the first officer was not identified correctly. And the third reason was incapacitation of the flight crew due to hypoxia, which led to the autopilot taking over and depletion of the fuel, which then inadvertently crashed the plane. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, so let's start with the first reason, the cabin pressurization mode. If you remember earlier when the ground engineer inspected the complaints from the previous flight crew, a pressurization leak check was performed. Now, usually after the inspection, all settings should be set to what it was before, which was auto. And in the inspection log, there was confirmation that all settings were put back accordingly. But then, during the flight checks, both the captain and first officer missed this setting as well. Basically, this setting was missed four times. If the cabin pressurization mode selector was set to auto, then the pressurization system would have kicked in at around 10,000 feet above ground and allowed oxygen levels inside the plane to level. But because it was set to manual, the oxygen levels were low and caused the third reason stated by the report, incapacitation due to hypoxia. Hypoxia is basically lack of oxygen needed by our body to function. Since the air is thin of oxygen at around 10,000 feet, it will be harder for our bodies to breathe, think, and move. What is scary is that once there is onset of hypoxia, there are only seconds left to correct it, or the person will experience dim vision, cannot speak or can speak but will not make sense, numbness, difficulty breathing, loss of consciousness, and eventually death. I want to make note that in the pathologist's report, it was found that in several cases, there was evidence of heart function at the time of impact, which makes you think that the passengers were alive, but at the same time, there was no clear evidence that any of them were conscious, because if you remember, the F-16 pilots did not see any movement in the cabin. Unfortunately, we will never know if the passengers were fully aware of what was happening. Also, during the last exchange with operations control, the last sentence that the captain said did not make sense at all, which led investigators to believe that hypoxia has already set in. When a sudden loss of cabin pressure and oxygen occurs while in flight, the oxygen masks will deploy to provide enough breathable air to the passengers and crew members. So when the masks deployed inside Flight 522's cabin, the plane was around 18,000 feet, which means that hypoxia has almost likely affected everyone inside. This leads us to the second reason. When the masks deployed, 
This should have been a sign to the captain and the first officer that something was wrong with the cabin pressure. It was determined that the captain and first officer misinterpreted the first alert that sounded off five minutes after takeoff. When communicating with operations, the captain was recorded to have said that the plane's takeoff configuration warning was the cause of the alert and was trying to fix the issue by following that protocol instead of the cabin pressurization mode. In the captain and first officer's defense, both warnings, takeoff configuration and cabin pressurization, sound exactly the same. And there have been similar occurrences around the world where these two alerts were misidentified. Following the report, there were at least 11 recommendations by the investigators to ensure that this type of failure does not happen again. The recommendations were aimed across several governmental bodies, including the Cyprus Department of Civil Aviation. Weeks later after the accident, Helios Airlines announced that they have successfully performed safety checks on all their leased planes. Coincidentally, the airlines also changed their name to AJET so it can continue to operate during the investigation. Currently, the company is no longer in business. While many years later, the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration sent a directive to Boeing requiring its 737 models to be retrofitted with two additional cockpit lights. One would indicate takeoff configuration and the other cabin pressurization. Nowadays, all planes, regardless of maker, have these lights as standard. Several lawsuits and criminal proceedings followed this tragedy. In 2008, a court in Athens charged six employees with manslaughter. Later in the same year, four officials of Helios Airlines, including the CEO, were charged with 119 counts of manslaughter. But at the end of the trial, all charges were dropped. Another trial was going to be brought against Helios Airlines in Cyprus, but due to double jeopardy rules and the acquittal in Athens, charges were dropped. However, it does not end there, because a Greek magistrate court brought charges against the CEO, chief pilot, flight operations manager, and chief engineer of Helios Airlines. This time, all parties were found guilty and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. But instead of serving time in prison, the four were given the option to buy out each of their sentences at the tune of 75,000 euros. The families of the victims also brought charges against Boeing for having the same alert system for two different functions. The charges were filed in Illinois with an asking compensation of 76 million euros. Boeing settled for an undisclosed amount. This tragedy is sometimes romanticized by many because of Andreas's heroic actions, compounded by the fact that on the plane was his girlfriend, Harris. It was believed that when the F-16 pilots last looked inside the cockpit as the plane descended to the ground, Andreas was no longer inside it. Many speculated that after Andreas realized his fate, he decided to go back to the cabin to find Harris for one last embrace. Although this is a scenario that we all would like to think 
The truth is that Andreas's body was found inside the cockpit. He most likely passed out at the end. The reality was, in spite of the bleak odds stacked against him and the rest of the people on the plane, he still sent a mayday signal at least two times, his voice weaker in the second one, as he gradually lost consciousness. But if he sent the mayday signal, where did it go? During the investigation, it was found that as Andreas was sending his cries for help on the radio, it was set to the wrong channel. At that moment, despite his courage and determination to save the plane from its pending doom, no one in the entire world was listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Untimely. I would like to know what you thought about this story and if you think Andreas did this for love, for courage, or for both. I also would like to thank two other amazing human beings, Lorinda, for helping me make this podcast as accurate as possible and providing technical advice, and Scott for help with reenacting the exchange between the captain and ground engineer. Also, please don't forget to give us a review and rating on iTunes, Google Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher or TuneIn, or wherever you choose to enjoy this podcast. Stop by and say hello to us on Twitter at Untimely Podcast. We'd love to hear from you.